0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. We're so pleased to bring you part two of David Cleveley's Invested Investor podcast. In part one, we heard how David made a name for himself. In part two. We hear how he's built a portfolio of angel investments through the Cambridge Angels, as well as his ventures into policy and even restaurant ownership. We hope you enjoy. So let's move on to investing. So you and Robert Sampson, who lives across the road here, yep. set up the Cambridge Angels in 2001. I'm now chair of that, and I've been a member for yep. about 10 years, but of course it goes back about 17 years. So tell me about why you did that. I mean, it's a crazy Robert,
0: thing to do. Robert right across the road. Literally, I walk out of my drive and walk into his. So he arrived, and uh, he said, is there an angel network? I haven't found one. And I said, no, there isn't. He said, let's have lunch. So we had lunch in, I think, Galleria on Bridge Street, sadly, no longer with us, I think. And we had a chat about it, and I just thought, well, I'd already set up Cambridge Network by that point, and that was an interesting piece of social infrastructure. The older I get, the more interested I get in those kinds of things. And I thought, well, this sounds like a good idea. There's a load of people around who, you know, are going to be making money and doing things. I've you know, got this exit from analysis, let's... But you hadn't at that point. You're Well, heading I will have an like, exit yeah. from analysis. I will have enough money to do this. I'm already making a bit of money out of analysis so I can afford, you know, some Yeah, some PIN money I can afford to play around with. So let's try and do this. I'm, you know, I'm setting up Abcam. Abcam, that point, was three years old, I suppose. It's an interesting space. Let's see what we can do. I know we quickly assembled a few people. I've seen the original email, actually. The 15, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very quick. And one of the most important things about that, Peter, was that a bit like... What I'd done with Cambridge Network and when I mentioned Cambridge Network is it put people in touch with each other who really ought to be in touch with each other, but for various reasons weren't necessarily going to meet. Mm. And so the way that Cambridge Angels does things, you know, with the dinners and so on, forms a great piece of uh, social engineering about forming a group and then provides the ability to learn because I learned, geez, in the first... Five years of Cambridge Angels, I'd learned so
1: much, so much. And in fact, Robert Sampson, who we will interview at some point, had been angel investing in Pittsburgh for some years before that. So he brought knowledge into the group. Yeah, Robert knew more about this.
0: And that's why he came to me and he said, well, where's the angel investing group?
1: Because he knew you knew
0: the network he here. he knew the people this, here. The, what this stuff was like. Yeah. So it's a great illustration of how you need People coming in from other environments into places in order to stimulate you to do things.
1: He'd been a uni here, but he'd disappeared for 20-odd years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he still has this slightly American accent. (laughs) Right, and so you started angel investing. Do you know how many angel investments you've made? Probably about 50 or 60, I would guess. Okay, and what have you learned from those?
0: The, The really rubbish ones are the ones where you don't do the due diligence, where you do it on emotion, and you just stick a little bit of money in, and then it starts to get rather more because you have to follow on. And you don't want to admit to yourself that it's going to end in tears. But there will be some that actually were
1: successful when you did that, I would think, as
0: well. Well, I liken this to, if I get a bit mathematical for a moment, to a Markovian process. A Markovian process is one where each step of the process is basically you roll the dice. And, you know, you can decide which direction you're going to go. If you roll dice, you roll six-sided dice, you could choose one of six directions Mm. to go. And then you just watch where the point is moving. So it will cover the entire surface at some point, but it may cover some bits of the surface more than others. Let's take a better example of that. So Markovian process where you've got a company that's growing. So every step of the way, every month, it's either going to go up or it's going to go down. The bias is that it's going to go up. But occasionally, you might throw three ones in a row, in which case the company goes bust. Mm. Now, the company might have a really good idea, might be actually on a trajectory that would go up through the ceiling, but because it threw those three ones in a row. And it's recognizing that that was just bad luck versus there is something systematically wrong with what you're doing Mm. that really is the big dividing line about investors and investments. And have you worked that out yet? Um, Well, I've learned to listen to the little voice inside rather more than I used to. And that steered me away from some things and steered me into the right decisions on others. I've also learned that sometimes you need to double up. So Newell is a good example of doubling up. Newell was not going to work and was not going to work big time unless it changed tack and got a new owner. And it certainly wasn't going to work if we put VC money in. And for the original investors, if we put VC money in, we would have been completely wiped out. But in order to get it to that exit, we had to actually pony up a significant amount of money at a fairly high risk and spin the wheel to see whether it was going to work or not. And it turns out, replace the founder with a new CEO. And do all sorts of stuff like that. Now, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I mean, they wanted me to be chairman. I I was too busy, so I, I was a director. But I still have quite a lot of responsibility for all of that. We would not have been able to do that. I think if it weren't for a couple of things, firstly, I had learned so much from Cambridge Angels and previous experience as to how to read the rooms, understand what was going on. And the other one was the people on the board, I'd already worked with most of them. I'd already knew them, so I could read stuff better, and we knew how to work together. Mm. And that turned out to be fine. Of course, in a parallel universe, quite close to ours,
1: it didn't. Yes. But there we go. Yes. Okay. So do you think you're cash on cash up yet? Excluding AppCam, clearly. No, the amount you've invested now is actually replaced, and you've got a portfolio of companies which will go on to great things. Oh, no,
0: that's because I've now piled in with an embarrassing large amount of money invested. In one particular company. No name. In those angel investments. I don't know how much, I mean, from those things, I mean, if I just do a quick tot up of three-way networks, which was a flip. Yeah. A very lucky flip, but we did it. I've got more than half of the cash that if X is the amount that I've currently got invested, I've probably got about half X so far okay. out. Okay, yeah. So you're
1: not there yet. Cash on cash, not yet. But you've got, hopefully, some great opportunities.
0: Oh, I've got one that will just
1: dwarf Abcam. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. And why am I not in that? <laughs> Don't tell the who it <laughs> <laughs> that cough was on purpose and we'll be left in.
0: <laughs> the thing about investing... You know, the number of times I tell people I've got this wonderful slam dunk. Yeah, I know. I've followed you into some things and, and it just they haven't worked. doesn't turn out. I mean, but the thing here is that if you've got the experience, if we take Ironscope, for example, which yeah. you know about, we made a number of slips on the engineering on Ironscope, which made it go backwards uh, rather than forwards. And it was absorbing so much money. And it was one of those where I was just, I just wanted to get the investor's money back. And I was... Head down not thinking too broadly and then brought in new team. Yeah. New team went, actually, you know what, well, we're about connecting things in the lab. Having done that, we were then able to exit to deep matter. Well, first of all, you swap from hardware to software. Didn't hardware you? to software. So that was a major well, there was a pivot. Of, there's a bit of hardware in labs. You need yeah. to be able to connect to bits of kits, so yeah. you need hardware as well as software. We're still selling the Ironscope stuff. And the Ironscope stuff actually still makes a nice profit, actually. It's a nice business. But the issue was that new management fresh perspective did something different made a transition we were then bought by what was then Cronin plc now it's called deep matter and i'm on the board of that that's a quoted company on aim and i did a deal in which as long as the share price crosses a certain threshold the investors who invested in the original company will at least get their money back yeah so you know it might not be a spectacular multiple but as far as i'm concerned When I had a very, very poor hand, Mm. I basically am going to deliver people their money back, which is, as far as I'm concerned, I feel a strong obligation to do that if I possibly can.
1: Yes, if you're close, if you're on the board or chair specifically.
0: You know, you feel the weight of that responsibility,
1: you really do. So let's move on to some other areas. So you're more overcommitted, I think, than I am. You're going to move into the restaurant business. Oh, yeah. Let's yet. talk about the pint shop and the other one, the one in London. di Lupo. Yeah. So you, you like me, because the Cambridge Angels are mainly B2B, but you do do a bit of B2C, like the one your son runs, Cam Newton, obviously a B2C yeah. business. right. But let's talk about restaurants. The pint shop, was that the first one or was it? No, it's Bocca Bocchety Lupo was the first. And that was back in 2000, and, well, actually
0: 2006-ish. My nephew started to talk to me about setting up a restaurant, doing various things. We looked at different models including a chain of Mexican restaurants. We did the business model on that. It's far too risky, far too risky. But we set up bocadilupo and I invested in that on the basis of the menu that he gave me. And the menu was revolutionary at the time. It was broken up, different regions, different kinds of food, and small plates and large plates, which is now quite common in a lot of restaurants. Then was absolutely nobody was doing it. And I looked at this and I thought, well, I would very much like to eat some of this food. Look at that. I could pick from there. I could pick from there. I could pick from there. It's proper Italian, not three courses, you know, the standard thing where you have to eat everything on the plate. No, just put the plates in the middle and everybody share and take what they like. It turned out into a rip-roaring success. And then we opened the Gelateria across the way, which is Jalupo, which in 2012 for the Olympics, Time compiled a list of a thousand things you should do in London and going to Jalupo was number one. It is the best gelato in the United Kingdom, and that took a bit of money, absorbed a bit of money out of Bocca, but we were still kind of a bit heady with all of this stuff because restaurants don't usually make money, and so you don't really know what to do at this point. And then, of course, we did a absolutely catastrophic thing, which was to rent a huge premises on on Cambridge Circus. I went to that restaurant and and
1: really enjoyed it and really disappointed it failed. No, no, no. I mean, the food was
0: fantastic. It was absolutely brilliant. But in the restaurant business, it's about passing trade. It's about reputation. It's about your place in the market. It's about the number of covers that you've got in the place, how efficient you are, what your overheads are and all those other bits Mm -hmm. and pieces. And the last straw when we just kind of were plodding on trying to make the whole thing work. And then the business rates nearly doubled. And You know, it's just, just forget it. You're just, you're just out of there. The promised point of actually crossing the line to be able to start to make some money out of it just moved so far into the future. It just wasn't worth it. We closed it. So you're down to two. Yeah, that's right. And I can safely say that Bocca di Lupo is just doing very well indeed. Thank you very much. And then, of course, you had a knock on the door and some guys from Cambridge. Yeah, they've been recommended because I've been involved in Bocca. And so the due diligence there was well, okay, if you're interested in this stuff, come round and bring some food and booze and talk us through how it's going to work. Because I'd learned from Jacob, you know, the thing about it is the concept is about the food and how you present it, how you spin the story, the narrative and so on. And Pint Shop's been fantastically successful in Cambridge, less so in Oxford. Premises weren't really the ideal ones to choose. We've got the third one just opened in Birmingham. We will now see the roll of the dice and you've got to hope that you get at least a three or a four.
1: Yes, okay. So let's just go back to networks. So you set up Cambridge Angels, which is a small network, but much bigger is Cambridge Network, yep. Cambridge Wireless, Cambridge yep. Ahead. Yep. You have a soft spot, do you, for setting up institutions which are going to help ecosystems? Well, yeah, the, the
0: whole of my life's been dominated by serendipity. When I was, uh, I remember, doing a project before university, and I actually put a little paragraph in the project about serendipity and how it just has made my entire life You know, the reason why I started on all of this stuff was I was walking down the school corridor in a break, and they were short of somebody to go in and hear a pitch by somebody from Post Office Telecommunications about sponsorship at university. They got dragged into it. Dragged into it, and my entire career has followed from what was a 30-second conversation with the careers master. And you think back on that, and my, my conversation with Jonathan. Had I not been sitting with Jonathan at that dinner and interested in him finding out what he wanted to do... And then, you know, understanding how the business model worked, Abcam wouldn't have been formed. Mm. Oh, it might have been, but that's another set of parallel universes exactly. that I don't know about. And it's always occurred to me, you know, when you know I work with people at analysis and then they came back to me and went three-way networks, which we sold to an American company that wanted to it for floating on NASDAQ and then went on to do control with Simon. All of those things have been the result of these chance encounters. Mm. In fact, I suggested to, you know, the impulse... Program the Maxwell Centre yeah. that chance encounters make great ideas possible or something whatever they you know I suggested that to Yipper and to Alexander too. That you give well as their slogan as their byline because that for me summarizes summarizes this stuff. I mean you know just go meet people. I've got eleven twelve thousand people on this phone and you know I can't keep in contact with everybody, but it's the links that then just enable you to do things. So you've got to make your own luck. You make your own luck. You've got to make your own connections. There's a wonderful passage which i quoted to somebody recently it's in pride and prejudice and it's where elizabeth bennett and darcy have a conversation and darcy says well i'm you know basically i'm a very shy person i'm not very good at conversation and elizabeth says well i regard myself as not a good piano player but i always put that down to the fact that i don't practice enough
1: (laughs) clever Uh, i paraphrased austin does it much more elegantly than that good okay and of course, the Centre for Science and Policy, that's effectively connecting governments and academia, isn't it? That is actually the kind of the distillation of everything I've learned about networking,
0: encapsulated in a single organisation. So they were trying to set up this thing, which was a successor to a thing called the Cambridge University Government Policy Programme. So they'd not found the right person. And they'd been having grand ideas about setting up institutes and so on. And so they phoned me up and I had them had a chat with them. I got an email where I say, I'm not sure I'm the right guy for this, but they insisted. And I went ahead with what was quite a different approach. I had £1.6 million given to me from donors and various other people. So I was sitting on this money, and of course the academics wanted me to spend this on doing research, and then the research would produce reports which you could then go and use to beat up policymakers with. It didn't strike me as very good for two reasons. One, I looked around this university, there's hundreds of millions of pounds of research being done, my stuff isn't going to make any difference. And secondly, if I were a policymaker, some academic coming to me with a Yet another tome of paper. Yet another paper (laughs) telling me how to do my job just goes down like a lead balloon, really. So I thought about it. I spent a year, not exactly spinning wheels, but I did things like I went to Harvard and MIT. I experimented. I did loads of business plans. I talked, talked and talked and talked. It's kind of, sessions at various colleges just with academics some of those sessions you know brought beads of sweat to my forehead because i was right out of my environment mm. trying to learn from them how this stuff actually worked listening for the clues that they were going to tell me how to make it work even though they didn't know how to do it and it was a conversation with a chap called arna de Mer, who was the head of the judge business school at the time that just go back to my favorite quote pastor again Chance Favors the Prepared Mind. I'd done all this work. It was December after a long period when I was been thinking about it. And I went to see Arnout just before Christmas. And he talked about the way in which he'd had the Belgian Minister of Health, who was a personal friend of his, come to the judge so that she could have that as a base and go down to Whitehall. And he said, look, the reason for doing it like that is you can send researchers into industry and they come back with a better idea about how industry works, but actually they just go back and do their research. You send people from industry into research, they get their eyes open to a whole series of things that they didn't know about. And they go back with a network that they can use then to further their career. And I just went, got it. Mm. And I said, right, I'm going to call them policy fellows. And he said, what well, are you going to have them in for three months? Like my friend from Belgium. I said, no, 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 no. Five days five days. They see 30 people, they do it in five days. This is going to be absolutely compressed. And what we have with the Centre for Science and Policy now is one and a half thousand researchers and experts. I think you've been one of them. No, I haven't actually, no. You haven't? Oh, we should get you on the list. And Thank then you. there's about 350 policy fellows, each of whom sees about 30 of these people. We've had over 9,000 meetings between them. And the result is that the networking now between the University of Cambridge and policymakers in government, and slightly more generally, is, you know, everybody's in contact with each other. And those bits that are useful will stick. And have you seen any outcomes which you're proud oh, of? Look, it doesn't go down terribly well if government wants to claim policy breakthroughs and changes in policy, and you go and say, well, actually, that was my idea, does it? So <laughs> I'm not going to do that, okay? But I will tell you there are several things where government policy has shifted as a result of those meetings. And there's been a lot of change as a result.
1: Well done. So, David, I, uh, the Raspberry Pi, I know Jack Lang, I didn't know Eben at the time, but I actually invested a little bit of money in that very first amount of money it was needed a donation. Thank Not you very much. Not very much, but I feel I'm part of the journey. No, no, no. Well, so let's talk uh, about that.
0: Uh, uh, no, those early things really counted. So
1: tell us about Raspberry Pi and your involvement.
0: Well, I mean, on the periphery, when you were doing that, I was somewhat on the periphery of the thing. I'm you know, talk to people, gave a bit of advice and so on. But when they'd actually got this stuff back into Jack's Garage and it started to fly out and get ordered, they realized that they were going to actually have to have a training board. So they had the training entity and they asked me, Sherry and Herman Hauser to join the training board. So I think I joined there in 2013, something like that. So that's independent from the charity. It's independent from the charity. So with these bunch of trustees I knew nothing about and they did their trustee stuff with the charity and I was on the training board. And so, trolled along doing that for a year or two, and increasingly frustrated. I had conversations with, mostly with Sherry, actually, to say, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on here, and, you know, started to get a little bit more chatty with David Braben in particular, but Eben as well, and just talking about things. And then David took me out for lunch at Japass, the Japanese restaurant, um, which I like very much, and said, we'd like you to be chairman. We'd like to be chairman of the trading company and of the foundation. These things are always a bit of a surprise to me. So I thought about it, and I you know, kind of went back and talked to Ros and said, you know, if you're asked to do this kind of thing, you really can't refuse. So I took him up
1: on that and started, I'm trying to remember whether it was 2015, I think, must be 2015. Was it turning out, it was doing hundreds of thousands of units, or even of, millions of units? Yeah, hundreds of those. thousands
0: of units. Yeah. It was obviously going to hit a million units. From the trading point of view, that was going on. The other thing which you need to understand is on the, on the charity side of things, money was now coming into the charity, and the charity was beginning to give money away to people who wanted money. Now, in my book, you need to be very careful with the charity. You need to understand, is your money really making any difference or not? So I did do quite a major shake-up of the charity after I arrived as chairman. We rewrote the Articles Association, we changed the management, we did a whole series of bits and pieces, and recruited a chap called Philip Colligan, who's turned out to be, I think, possibly the best recruitment I've ever made. He's the CEO of the charity. And I then spent, I suppose, two or three years just helping get the whole thing so it can scale up. And mm. give you some idea, Philip was the, I think, the seventh or eighth employee into the foundation. Now have got 130 it's about 30 or 40 in trading so 90 or 100 or so in foundation so,
1: is it in the public domain how much money the
0: charity actually distributing oh charities have to declare everything you've got to be transparent we're doing i don't know spending about seven million a year or something like that a large chunk of that is with on code club and coda dojo originally when we started the charity code club was the biggest single recipient of our money we did a lot of other things.
1: That's computing education in schools?
0: Yeah, it's for kids up to about the age of 11 or 12. And it's a staffed mostly by volunteers, I mean, on the ground. And we provide all the curriculum development, all the projects and all the assistance and so on. And that means that through Code Club, we're educating about 200,000 children a week. In the UK, mainly? No, no, less than 100,000 probably in the UK, but it's maybe a bit more. But throughout the whole world, I mean, you know, Places like Australia particularly strong. And because of the system, the way we've done it, as we set it up, it costs us about 35 to 40p per child.
1: Per week, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I like things that scale like that. You know, get the cost down. It's a bit like Abcam. Whole point is get the thing so it scales, so each unit costs you less and less. So the foundation side, of go back about how that actually works. So the foundation then, with Philip, shifted its emphasis away from giving any money. We stopped giving money away. And Instead of which we said, as Philip says, we've got a plan, it's a great plan, get with the plan. So Raspberry Pi Foundation now is pretty close to being 50% other people giving us money because we've got competence Mm. to be able to then do projects and execute on things that they feel are valuable. It's a bit like it's a fool who has himself for an investor, that old adage, it's very good for a charity. Discipline will be quite different discipline is utterly different if what you have to do you don't do anything unless some third party arm's length mm. thinks it's also a good idea and you've convinced them but all of that has happened and the the whole thing has grown usually. and on the technology side of course which is another matter we've just released three plus obviously it wouldn't take immense a genius to work out that if you've got a Pi one a Pi two and a Pi three four's on the way who knows who <laughs> knows what might be next <laughs> yes <laughs> and so there are a lot of technology challenges and making sure the ecosystem that is built round about Pi uh, is supported. I mean, people talk about Pi as being educational because, of course, on the charity side it is, but most Pi's are not used for educational Industrial hobbies. Industrial electronics, aren't they're, they? Go down the escalators in the underground, all those video screens are powered by
1: Raspberry Pi's. Mm. You know, they're just absolutely everywhere. Mm. And they all generate a bit of profit, which then goes into the charity. That's exactly what the model right. is. Yeah. That's exactly Phenomenal right. Phenomenal model, Yeah. yeah. So, David, you've been in Cambridge much longer than me. You support it strongly. You promote it. You try and put it on the map in a great way. Cambridge Network originally. You've got a couple of other institutions you've set up. Cambridge Ahead and also this report you've done recently. Can we talk through that?
0: Yeah, Cambridge Ahead, I was originally quite sceptical about it, but it's turned out to be really quite an impressive organisation, to be honest. Its remit is to get the business community together to think ahead 20 or 30 years. So it then addresses things like transport and housing and skills, education communications communications brand yeah now brand brand has been a real bugbear for me about cambridge because we don't market cambridge effectively really there's no joined up marketing of cambridge there's a project currently going on with the university which i hope will finally solve that but i peeled off from three failed attempts to try and get cambridge marketing as an entity going and i thought to myself well Actually, what Cambridge is really suffering from is not the marketing per se. What we really need is the infrastructure. And so what we need is a project that will demonstrate why Cambridge is important to the UK, European and world economy. And will therefore draw to the policymakers' attention what actually needs to be done in terms of infrastructure. And infrastructure is defined very broadly. And part of that's informed by work I've done for government – and some of the stuff that I've done for the Centre for Science and Policy. So I then wrote the terms of reference for this and was originally thinking about it in terms of just the greater Cambridge area. But when we got the elected mayor coming along, I went off to have a chat with them and persuaded them to part with some money. Cambridge had funded quite a lot of it. And we produced this report, which is a Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Independent Economic Review which basically gives you the economic and a lot of demographic baseline for what's happening in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. And then it lays out how the area is going to or could unfold, talks about different ways in which it can work, and then talks about some of the infrastructure deficits that we've got. Most importantly, I think to draw from that report, firstly, Cambridgeshire and South Cambridgeshire is two thirds of all of that. It's far less in terms of population. Mm. In terms of economic activity, it's two-thirds. And the mayor has a target of doubling GVA. If he's going to double GVA, he has to make sure that that engine keeps on delivering. Number two is the growth in this area. It is enormous. It is the fastest-growing city that the United Kingdom has ever seen. And that includes the whole of the 19th century in Barnsley and other places that I thought were faster-growing. When I went back and looked at the stats... Cambridge is outpacing them. Now, Cambridge is enjoying the same kind of rate of growth that Silicon Valley saw in the 1960s and 1970s when it went from kind of the apple orchards in the 30s through the beginnings of the foundations. And then in the 60s and 70s, the Silicon Valley that we know was actually laid down. And it was that growth rate. We are at the same point on that curve. Except we're tiny compared to Silicon Valley, which is probably, what, about 90 Uh, miles? So, Peter... A lily doubles in size every day, and on the 28th day, it covers the pond. At what point was the lily only a centimetre across? Oh, uh, can't do That's the 28th root of two. I'll I can't you, do that in my head. Well, the 28th root of two, you couldn't see the lily. Even after a fortnight, no, my you, you across. can't see the lily yes. with a naked eye. Yeah. By about day 22, if you looked very carefully you might be able to see the lily. By day 28, it covers the pond, right? Exponential growth is counterintuitive. Cambridge is growing at over 7% a year. It's doubling every 10 years. That means that over the next 20 years, we will be four times the size we are now. Mm. 130,000 people becomes getting on for over half a million, 600,000 people. I mean, and actually, some of the employment and revenue growth, if we go back slightly over 12 months to look at the previous year, the growth rates were in double figures, right? Now, you can't have an antiquated transport system. You can't have the education system. We're near the bottom of the league for spending per pupil, partly because when you have fast growth rate, mm-hmm. you have more you people keep up. and you're not a big yeah, enough budget. Yeah, yeah. What's happening to the health system? What's happening to all those bits and pieces? That's what this report is about, saying, look, if you want this engine of growth, as Greg Winter, who got the Nobel Prize earlier this week, said, you know, the biggest single blockbuster drug that has ever been in the history of the world came out of Cambridge, right? He got Nobel Prize for the precursor to the That's work that... Humira, was it? Yeah, like. Humira, yeah, yeah. that actually produced all yeah. of that. Okay, if you want this massive goose continuing to lay golden eggs at an ever-increasing rate, you better feed it, and you better make sure that it's got a decent nesting box. So where will this go to? Do you think this report will actually lead to change? Uh, I, I suspect so. I mean, the mayor is tasked, he's publicly stated he wants to, you know, see this area successful. We take a balanced view of Peterborough and Huntington and the Fens, as well as Cambridgeshire and South Cambridgeshire, think about the whole thing. So I think largely we've got things aligned. It's going to be a repeat, in effect, of, you know, what we did with Cambridge Network and all the other things that with the networking, getting people working together. Mm we don't understand in Cambridge, you know, the rest of the world, actually, there's quite a lot of competition out there. People don't, you know, generally have these chats and mentoring sessions and do these other bits and pieces. I think we need to spread that culture a bit because it's been part of what has enabled us to grow so successfully. So spreading that a little bit, getting people to exchange ideas, understanding how you can improve productivity, you know, learning what's important, why people need to raise their eyes from, you know, the dull and mundane to aspire to better things. Mm. All of that stuff we can do. We just need to make sure that the local authorities and the political will is there, that everybody's then working together. I've got great faith in human beings. You know, just let human beings have sight of a vision and they will do fantastic things. You don't need to do everything for them. They will do that stuff. And that's part of what this report is about. Saying, right, here it is. Now let's get on with it. We can actually achieve great things here. And not just for the few within Cambridge, but for the whole of the region. That's really important.
1: So David, we all know that diversity in entrepreneurs and angel investors is poor. What's your view?
0: Oh, well, yeah, diversity is hugely important. It makes companies, organizations much more effective, much more efficient. I remember somebody from the Foreign Office bring one of the Greek Prime Minister's advisors to see me into analysis. I was very proud on the way out. And I stopped at the reception desk and I said, look, you've met seven people here. As far as I'm aware, only two of them were born in the United Kingdom. I didn't say at the time about either ethnic background or whether they were male or female. There was quite a variety of that as well. And I was very proud of that analysis in particular. We had people from all over the world and we had a good split of male and female. Not as good as looking back on it now, I would have done some other things a bit differently, but you learn, you learn. When Bob Driver took over as head of Cambridge Wireless. And I sat actually in this very garden at this very table. And I said to him, Bob, you only have one strategic objective for Cambridge Wireless, and that's diversity. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that as organizations, and take something like Cambridge Wireless, which is a membership organization, if it's, you know, middle class, white male, stale, it might feel nice and comfortable, but it's not going to get anywhere certainly not in the modern age. But if he it does, it's going to go the wrong direction. And it's going to the wrong direction. Yeah. We made a huge effort after that. We diversified the board. It's not as diverse as it you know, might be, but we've got some really interesting women on the board. We have a decent ethnic mix on the board. The board meetings are orders of magnitude better than they were. And it's much more lively, much more interesting. And I just feel that this isn't political correctness. This is simply, if you want organisations to function properly and be effective and efficient you better look after diversity and in order to do that you actually have to make a bit of an effort you know i feel about this stuff very strongly
1: mm. yeah i was on stage in toronto last week exactly addressing this issue that i mean the angel investors women are probably only about 10 percent or less and entrepreneurs are probably up about the 20 percent mark yeah,
0: it's trouble is there's a long pipeline you know if you're going to be a founder and then do an exit and start to do angel investing and so on you have a couple of decades probably So, you know, it's going to take a few cycles before we can
1: correct this. Well, cycles is even longer. But yes, it's certainly going to take at least 10 years before we get anywhere near.
0: Yeah, we're beginning to see some of the fruits of stuff that was done more than 10 years ago. It's beginning to come through. But you're not going to be able to just change this stuff overnight. On the other hand, that should not stop you doing it. You do need to push and push Mm -hmm. and push push. on this. Quotas?
1: Um,
0: Yes. I mean, well, quotas are useful. I mean, I've used them at Raspberry Pi. We have members at Raspberry Pi who help us select trustees and their ambassadors for us. When I redid the articles for Raspberry Pi, when I first became chairman, one of my first acts was to put in some minimum quotas. Those minimum quotas were about female participation in membership, about ages, about diversity of backgrounds, about diversity of industry sector they came from. Because, of course, you know, with Raspberry Pi, the tendency would be to select people in computer science... And since a lot of women have been discouraged from going into computer science, you then inevitably end up with males, right? So you actually had to set up a framework in the first place that said, you know, if you violate these percentages, you've got to stop. You've got to not select anybody who's male anymore. You've got to go and get somebody else. Mm. And I think that kind of positive discrimination in that sense is really important. You don't have it forever with any luck. You use it to engineer change. I'm particularly pleased with Code Club, for example. Code Club. I mean, it's younger kids, but, you know, we're getting over 40% girls at Co-Club. Oh, excellent. You know, so there's hope for doing these things, I think. And I think it makes for a better environment.
1: Good. Excellent, David. So just to apologise to the listeners who probably heard that small aircraft flying overhead occasionally during this. Great to have it outside. We're in the sun. It's autumn. It's a lovely day. David, again, as always, every time I spend time with you, I learn from these conversations. And thank you very much indeed. Thank
0: you, Peter. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from the Invested Investor.